Good morning, church. So we're coming alive with Amazing Grace in this sermon series titled Amazing Grace. We started this uh, two, three weeks ago. We're a third message into the series. And I want to go back and do a little review in case you weren't here for those first two messages. I'll use my little objects. In the first message, we had a clip from the movie Oliver Twist. Little Oliver was holding up his bowl here. Please, sir, may I have some more? And the lunchroom monitor, whoever the guy was, just went crazy. No, you can't have any more. But we were asking the question, is there more? Do we sometimes feel like there's more to our Christian experience than what we are having? And we compare ourselves maybe to the Christians we read about in the New Testament and the joy and the peace that characterize their lives or some of the people we read about and the voice of the martyrs and they're undergoing confiscation and imprisonment. Death sometimes martyrdom, and yet their lives are characterized by great joy and love and peace. And we compare that to our first world problems and think, you know, why don't I have this in my spirit? So we thought maybe, maybe sometimes if there is a, a, a fault that it's in our shallow grace, that is in our understanding of the grace of God. So we determined to mine this great vein of wealth, of doctrinal wealth, that is God's grace so that we could sort of fulfill in the spirit of Ephesians chapter 3, where Paul prayed, I want you to know and to experience the love of God, its depth, its height, its breadth, its width, so that you can experience everything that God has for you. So we springboard from that, and we're launching into this sermon on grace. Now, sermon series on grace. The second little object here is the clothespin. This was last Sunday's message, and we used the clothespin to illustrate two traits or two characteristics within God's nature. So on the one hand, you've got the holiness of God, and on the other hand, you have the love of God. We talked about how these two came into conflict with each other when sin entered the picture. Because the holiness of God, when it's confronted with sin, morphs into wrath. So it's kind of like the Hulk busting out of Bruce Banner. This is God, his holy wrath erupts upon sin and sinners. That's bad news. But Fortunately, you've got this other attribute of God's nature, which is his love. And when the love is confronted by the same sin and the same sinners, love morphs into grace. That word grace means gift. It is a gift that brings joy. We talked about the loving nature of God loves to give. He gives to us in creation. He gives to us in providence. He's giving to us right now because he loves us. The ultimate gift that God wants to give, give us is the gift of forgiveness, the gift of forgiveness and eternal life through His grace. So we pull that clothespin apart into the shape of a cross. Now, a lot of you broke your clothespins. This apparently is more difficult than it seems, but we do have extras, and I can do it for you if you like. But we just wanted to use the clothespin as a cross to illustrate the resolution of this tension within the nature of God between His holy wrath and His loving grace. And the answer was Jesus on the cross, where God in the form of Jesus took upon himself his own wrath and the penalty for sin, satisfying the holiness of God. So now he is free to exercise his loving grace and to forgive us of our sins and give us eternal life, at least to those who accept this offer of free, of free grace. So that brings us up to today. Now today, in our message this morning, I want to talk a little bit about our response to the grace of God. And I want to start off with this preacher story. If you grew up in church, you may have heard this story before, but that's all right. You need to hear it again. And if you never heard it, you might find it illuminating. An active, dedicated, hardworking church member dreamed that he passed away after a long and satisfying life. As he approached the heavenly gate, he noticed a sign posted which read, entrance requirements, 1,000 points. 
The man looked a bit worried. He walked up to the angel guarding the gate and he said, that requirement seems pretty high. Do you think I could possibly have accumulated that many points? And the angel kindly replied, well, why don't you tell me what you've done and I will tell you how many points that you have earned. The man said, okay. He said, I was an immersed believer in Christ for 32 years. I taught a Sunday school class for over 12 years. I was a youth chaperone whenever they needed me. And I was a regular member of the praise team. The angel said, that's wonderful. Now let me see, that's worth one point. The man suddenly became very pale and began to perspire, but he went on. Well, I tithed all my income and sometimes I even gave more. Also, I served as an elder in the church and on the finance committee and the building committee. I attended every work day at the church. I mowed the grass, did repairs and painting. And every fellowship supper, I helped set up the chairs and tables and then I stayed late to help take them down again. He looked expectantly at the angel who smiled sympathetically and answered politely, that sounds great. That's worth another point. And now you have two. The poor man's face sagged with futility and his shoulders drooped as he seemed to resign to his fate. I may as well give up, he mourned. I don't think I can ever be good enough to get into heaven. In fact, it seems impossible for me or anybody else to get in there without the grace of God. Ah, said the angel brightly, you're at the wrong gate. You need the grace gate. And that in itself is worth all 1,000 points. And at that point, the man awoke from his dream. His bed was thoroughly soaked with perspiration, but he had a smile on his face and a whole new outlook on his Christian life. All right, well, that little story we're springboarding off of points to the idea that there are actually two ways into heaven, two ways to enter into eternal life. And we're going to talk about those today. Paul writes in Romans chapter 6 and verse 14, you are not under law, but under grace. Now these two ways, law and grace, these are the two ways to enter into heaven. It is as if the heavenly city, eternal life is a, a great city with a wall, an impenetrable wall around it. I don't know what the problem is with building a wall around here. I built this one in less than an hour. And this wall has two gates. You've got the law gate and the grace gate, which represent the law system and the grace system. Everybody is standing in line at one of these two gates. Everybody who's ever lived, everybody in this room right now, is in line at one of these two gates, either the law gate or the grace gate. And if you're over here in the line of the law gate, you gotta get that thousand points. You have to accumulate enough good deeds and good works in order to be acceptable to God and earn your way into heaven. So people that are standing in that line with that concept tend to be characterized by worry and anxiety. Boy, if I died today and I stood before God, would I be acceptable to him? And down deep inside, they seriously doubt it. Now, folks over here on the grace gate, they're trusting in Jesus, you know, Christians in their pocket. They've got the golden ticket that says admit one free of charge, got your name on it. Well, they are or should be happy on their way to heaven. Blue skies and rainbows, everything's great. Joy, love, peace. But here's the problem. The problem is this. Many people, Christian people, who are standing over here in the line at the grace gate are not characterized by joy and peace and assurance. I do the Discover class every month. We have people from all kinds of denominational backgrounds or no background at all. Some point, ask the question, if you died now, are you confident, if you died today, are you confident that you would go to heaven? And many times, people with a religious background, with some kind of Christian background, the answer is, well, I hope so. I'm trying to. I'm working on it. I'd like to think so. Well, those, those are law type of answers coming from Christian 
type of people. So what I want to do this morning, we want to nail this down because one way to absolutely have the assurance that, yes, I'm going to heaven is to abandon this law gate altogether. Well, let's talk about the two ways into heaven. First of all, the law system or the law gate. It's characterized in Luke chapter 10. There was a lawyer who came to Jesus and he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, how does the law, what does the law say? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, well, the way I read it is this. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, that's right. You do this and you will live. This is the way. This is working your way to heaven. If you do this, you actually do it, you will live. Now, the lawyer, the expert in the law, went on. He was a little worried. So the Bible says, attempting to justify himself, he asked who his neighbor was because he knew he had not always loved his neighbor as himself. Is it possible to enter into heaven in this way, by the law, by keeping the commandments? Theoretically, yes, it is. And a lot of people think this way. In fact, I've heard this many times at funerals. So you go to a funeral, you go to the viewing, for instance, and people are talking, maybe talking about the person who's deceased, a relatively good person, and they'll say something like, you know, this person was so good. She was so good. She was a saint. If there's any justice, she went straight to heaven. If there's any justice, she went straight to heaven, or he went straight to heaven. In fact, H.T., after the first service, told me about the funeral for his brother. When his brother passed away, H.T. attended the funeral, and it was a Catholic mass, and the priest said, I know brother and so-and-so went straight to heaven because he hosted the Oktoberfest every, every year. I'm serious. All right, so it's that kind of mentality. If there's, so think of what's being said there. If there's any justice, what they're saying is, if God is just, if God is fair, he's going to give her or him what they deserve and what they earn by living such a good life, he's going to let them right into heaven because that's what they've earned. Here are the ground rules, the basic ground rules for the law gate. Here's how this works. If there was a banner over here with the how do you get in and how does this work, it would read as follows. Keep the commandments, escape the penalty, break the commandments, suffer the penalty. That's the law system. Keep the commandments, escape the penalty. Break the commandments, suffer the penalty. Now that makes perfect sense. It is logical, it's rational, it's just, and it's fair. If a person will just keep God's commandments, they're going to be fine. Escape the penalty, which is eternal death in hell, right? So you get into heaven. Is it possible? Theoretically, yes. This is plan A. This is what God wanted for everybody. In fact, in the beginning, before Adam and Eve sinned, they were on this track. They were on the track. They were great fellowship with God. They were keeping his commandments. I suppose if they'd kept on that track, they would just been translated into heaven at some point. But then sin entered the picture and everything changed. So we have to understand what is meant here by keep the commandments. We say keep the commandments, escape the penalty. What does that really mean? What it means is a person is going to do this. And what, let me hold on just a second. Let me get ahead of myself. Let me say a couple things about law. Number one, law is not bad. It's good. Number two, we're always under some kind of law because God is our creator. We're creatures. And so we're obligated to obey our creator. And sometimes when Paul is writing about the law in his letter to the Romans, he's talking about the Old Testament law, the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments sometimes. Sometimes when he says law, he's talking about the law that God has written on every person's heart. Whether they have any written revelation or not, they have a sense of oughtness and they know certain things are right and certain things are wrong. That's the law on a person's heart. Right? So just because we're Christians doesn't mean we're not under obligation to obey God. 
Jesus gave all kinds of rules and regulations in the Sermon on the Mount. In the letters of Paul, there's all kinds of rules for how we are to live, and we are obligated to do that. When Paul says you're not under law but under grace, he's talking about law as a system of salvation, as a means of salvation. To keep the commandments means to keep them perfectly, all of them for our entire lives. A person who does this or who did this would, yes, would go right into heaven, would have earned heaven or eternal life. That's theoretical. Here's the reality. If we break one of the commandments even one time, then we're behind the curve and you can never catch up. The Bible says in James chapter 2, verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. So in order to qualify here, you've got to be like the baseball player who bats a 1,000. Every time he gets up at bat, he gets a hit. You've got to be that bowler who always bowls a 300. Every time he rolls the ball, he bowls a strike. You've got to be like a basketball player. Every time he shoots a field goal, it goes in the hoop. It has to be that degree of perfection. It's not 51% versus 49%. 51% good, 49% bad. It's got to be 100% up here. Has anybody done that? Nobody in this room. Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, there is none righteous, not even one. Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 20, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. So while it is theoretically possible in actuality and reality, nobody's going to get into heaven, into the great city through this gate. This gate is closed for business. Anybody who's in this line has got to abandon this line as soon as possible. Now, fortunately, there is not just this one gate into heaven. There's another gate. It's as if Jesus walked up to the great city and he walked right past the law gate. Wait a minute, there's no steps here. And he broke down the wall with his battering ram and created another gate. And the battering ram was his cross. And this gate is a means by which sinners can enter into heaven, and it's called the grace gate. Now, how, what are the ground rules for the grace gate? They are the exact opposite of the law gate. So remember the law gate, keep the commandments, escape the penalty, break the commandments, suffer the penalty. Here are the ground rules for the gate, grace gate. Keep the commandments, suffer the penalty. Break the commandments, but escape the penalty. It's not just a variation on the law. It's the exact opposite. And we look at that statement, and you think about it for a minute, and you have to say something's not quite right about that. You know, something doesn't ring quite true. Certainly, it doesn't appear to be fair. Break the commandments, but escape the penalty. Well, that's, that is not fair, but we all understand that because we think about that, there's no real reason to object to it. We're kind of glad that that's there since we have all broken the commandments and we get to escape the penalty. We're okay with that. What about the first statement? That's really not fair. Keep the commandments, but suffer the penalty. But so since it doesn't apply to anybody, then it's really superfluous. Why even have it up there? Well, it's not that it doesn't apply to anybody, is it? Was there a person who kept the commandments, all of them, perfectly for their entire life? Yeah, absolutely. That person was Jesus. And he is the only person that first clause was ever intended to apply to. 
Jesus. In fact, it's the first clause up there that makes the second one possible. They are cause and effect. Because Jesus kept the commandments but suffered the penalty, we are able to break the commandments but escape the penalty. Steve, are you saying that grace is not fair? Absolutely, grace is not fair. It is not just. It's the opposite of fair. It is anti-fair. It is a gift. It is not what we have earned. Now, we're going to take a little matching. We're going to take a little quiz today on the back of your bulletin. This is a matching quiz. And you'll see I've got uh, Jesus and you on one side, and I've got sin and righteousness on the other side. So we're going to draw a line with your pen, your pencil, or in your mind to do this. And I want you to, in your mind or with your pen, draw a line between to, from Jesus to either sin or righteousness. What's right right there? What's the right match? And from you to either sin or righteousness. What would be the right match? Do, 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 do. This should not take very long. So, but remember, now here's, here's you know it's always, Steve's a trick. And remember, uh, we're talking about the grace system. Now, so you've done that. All right, before we grade our quizzes, we're going to read a verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, where Paul writes, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. If you draw that line from Jesus to righteousness and from your name to sin or sinfulness, well, that's understandable, but as far as how we're saved, that's old law thinking. God made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin. So you're going to draw that line from Jesus to sin. That we might become the righteousness of God in him, in Christ. So you draw that line from your name to righteous, righteousness. How righteous do you have to be to go to heaven? perfectly righteous. It's not 51%. It's pass-fail. Either are or you aren't. But part of the gift of salvation is that God imputes to us the righteousness of Christ. So what happens in Christian salvation is that in grace, God treats everybody the opposite of how they deserve to be treated. God gives everybody the opposite of what they've earned, starting with Jesus. What did Jesus deserve and what had he earned? He deserved to be welcomed and received and treated like the great and glorious king that he is, but he wasn't. He was crucified a criminal's death on the cross. He got the opposite of what he deserved. And likewise, what did we deserve? Well, we're rebellious sinners, and we deserved eternal punishment and condemnation. But what does God give to us under grace? He receives us with open arms. He loves us and welcomes us into his family, and he forgives us and gives us the gift of eternal life. He treats us and gives to us the opposite of what we've earned and what we deserve, and he does the same thing for Jesus. The quickest way to get the assurance of salvation is to abandon once and for all, attempting to be accepted by God on the basis of works of law. Now, I will hasten to add, it's not that good works are not important or that we should not strive for them, or again, that we're not obligated to obey whatever commandments our Creator has given to us. We absolutely are. And those good deeds and works are important for another reason, a gracious reason. It's gravy on top, but they are not the foundation of our salvation. That is absolutely, truly, purely a gift from God. So this affects our mentality. 
our whole mentality. Once we realize this, we can't earn it, and we've abandoned this, and we're standing in the grace line, and we've got the golden ticket, then it should affect how we think and how we feel, how we approach life and everything we do. Jesus told um, a parable. A parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Two men who are rehearsing what they're going to say when they stand before God one day in judgment. It's not really the context of the parable, but it works, and that's how I want to apply it this morning. So they both go up to the temple and say, God says to the first man, the Pharisee, why should I let you into my heaven? And the Pharisee's response was, well, because I'm not like other men. Certainly not like that sinful tax collector. I give my money, I tithe, I pray, I fast, I do this, 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 this. It's ticking off the list. Then God comes to the tax collector, the lowly tax collector. Why should I let you into heaven? And, and Jesus said he wouldn't even lift up his eyes and just beat his breast and said, have mercy on me, the sinner. Have mercy on me, a sinner. That's a grace answer. You had a law answer and you had a grace answer. And Jesus said, the, Pharise- the one who went to his home justified was the tax collector and not the Pharisee. One day we will stand before God. Maybe today, it may be tomorrow, maybe at some point in the future, but all of us are going to stand before God. He's going to ask us that question. Why should I let you into heaven? And we want to make sure in our own minds and hearts, we understand the, it's the grace. It's got to be a grace answer. It cannot be a law answer. Have mercy on me, a sinner, is a grace answer. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. That's a grace answer. Grace answer. Always relying on the gift and the grace of God. Our Father in heaven, we pray this morning. I know there's a constant tendency to drift back over here into the law mentality where we're thinking about the things that we've done and we're worried that we're not good enough or that we haven't done enough or we haven't lived up to the, to the standard that you have set for us. And that's true. We aren't good enough and we haven't lived up to that standard. We pray that we can remember this morning, God, that we're standing in the grace line. And it's because Jesus has taken our place on the cross